A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible Resistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you have come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this week's show. Before we get into the content that we plan to discuss today, a quick plug for a workshop that we are in the process of organizing in mid-October. It's called Mind the Gap, and ostensibly it's an opportunity for us to engage with basic researchers, clinical researchers, healthcare professionals, and patients with musculoskeletal pain to try to identify the gaps and breakdowns in misunderstandings between those different entities. Specifically, we're going to mine the gap with an intent to try to identify solutions that will facilitate translation. So if you're interested in attending the workshop, we'll include the link for registration on the website. So please go along, have a look at the program. If it's of interest, register for the workshop and we look forward to interacting with you there. Obviously, don't hesitate to give us any feedback about the podcast or the program through email on the website. Look forward to hearing from you soon. This week, we have the privilege of discussing early osteoarthritis. At present, the majority of people with osteoarthritis present late in the disease course. For the most part, our reactive siloed healthcare system 
is structured to respond to this late stage disease with expensive investigations and interventions that are both costly, but also potentially harmful. By that point in the disease, many who are affected by osteoarthritis are deconditioned, have developed chronic pain and sensitization, and possibly developed other health problems as a consequence of their osteoarthritis. Many other diseases, including diabetes, cancer, and osteoporosis, screen people early in the disease course to identify those at highest risk of development of disease and poor prognosis, and ideally intervene early before any late stage complications are likely to ensue. There have been discussions ongoing in this regard for osteoarthritis for a number of years. Where are we at with making that a reality? Is it associated with its own risks and harms? The purpose of this episode of Joint Action is to unpack this complicated area and identify what benefits can be gained by detection and intervention early in the disease course. We're joined by none other than Stefan Lomander. Professor Lomander is a senior professor in orthopedic surgery at the Department of Clinical Sciences at Lund University in Sweden. He received training and degrees at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. And after serving as a visiting scientist at the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, USA, he moved to Lund University. He has published more than 400 scientific papers and is the emeritus editor-in-chief of the journal Osteoarthritis and Cartilage. He believes passionately in improving the osteoarthritis patient treatment by better understanding of disease mechanisms, by using patient-reported outcomes to evaluate care, and by systematically collecting evidence as a basis for shared decision-making between patient and healthcare professional. Stefan, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Stefan, it's great to see you, albeit at a greater distance than we all would like, and we're very much looking forward to the next time you have an opportunity to come and visit us down in the southern part of the world. Uh, we've greatly benefited from your previous visits and really looking forward to to catching up at some point and hopefully the not too distant future, albeit at this point it does appear to be some time away. Now, before we get into the topic of the day, I usually like to start these recordings with giving the listeners an opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. So in the first instance, in an effort to try to do that, I'm hoping you might be able to describe yourself in five words. Uh, I would say perhaps the first word that comes up um, in, in this particular connection that we're, we're now at, I would say curious. I'm passionate about the things I believe in. I'm a patient person. I'm in, in it for the long run, so to say. I've also been uh, characterized as a bit stubborn. Well, I think that's, uh, that gives at least some aspects of, of myself. Stefan, thank you so much for sharing that with us. It's greatly appreciated. And it's a good opportunity for the listeners to get to know you a little bit better. I've obviously had the privilege of knowing you over a number of years and really respect you as a friend, as a colleague, and as a mentor, and I've really had the privilege of interacting with you closely. So thank you for sharing those qualities about yourself. Now, I appreciate that at the moment, 
things are a little bit different. Um, it's summertime there in Sweden, and so you've been busy gardening and swimming and all kinds of uh, outdoor enjoyable things. But from a professional perspective, on a day-to-day -day basis, what is it that you typically would do? Well, I'll give a thumbnail sketch of sort of where I, how I come to be where I'm at. That perhaps gives a bit, a bit of a background. I started out uh, doing a bit of lab research during my medical studies, which led to a PhD thesis, and uh, then I got my MD, etc., et at the Karolinska Institute, as you mentioned. And then I spent two years at the NIH in the USA. I came back home to Sweden and moved down to Lund University, where I started my orthopedic training and during those years I gradually built up a research group uh, on joint research I might call it which eventually morphed into a research group on osteoarthritis and I had a career uh, of over many years where I where I worked in parallel uh, on the floor so to say as an orthopedic surgeon with patients and also uh, guiding and leading a, a research group doing osteoarthritis research. And then I, as we do in Sweden, I, uh, I was, uh, there is a compulsory retirement age if you're in public service. And uh, this meant that I stopped doing my clinical work, but I've continued since my retirement to be active in research. And that's where I am now, working with uh, people around the world and also with uh, my former colleagues who now run their own groups uh, here uh, in Sweden and, and in Lund. Well, you've had a great influence on me and I know you've had a great influence on many others through your professional and other interactions. So I'm hoping that that's something that can continue for many, many years to come. Now, from a non-professional enjoyment hobby perspective, when you're not doing your day job, what is it that you like to do? Uh, I like to spend time with my children and with friends. I love to experience nature over and under the water around the world. I enjoy uh, photography. I enjoy uh, music, reading a good book, sometimes in combination. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. Um, and now in the interest of getting onto the topic of the day, and it's something very near and dear to your heart um, and that a number of others have contributed to, including uh, Frank Leuton. I'm wondering in the, in the first instance, we just help the listeners to understand what is early osteoarthritis and how do you differentiate that from established osteoarthritis? Well, I think I would first uh perhaps comment briefly on what we call established osteoarthritis today in routine healthcare, both as orthopedic surgeons and rheumatologists and GPs. I would, I would suggest that we are still looking at osteoarthritis, a diagnosis of osteoarthritis, the presence of osteoarthritis in a patient if that patient has the classic symptoms, which we can discuss in more detail if you want and the combination of those symptoms with the radiographic signs on a plain x-ray examination. That's what I would call established osteoarthritis. So it means that you need to have the x-ray findings and you need to have the symptoms in combination. I would argue that osteoarthritis should primarily be a clinical diagnosis 
and should not rely on the presence of radiographic signs. And thereby, actually, we are, we are beginning to talk about early osteoarthritis because many patients have classical symptoms, the typical symptoms of osteoarthritis of their knee, for example, or their hip, and where x-ray exam doesn't really show anything. And they're told that, well, you have a bit of a joint pain. There is nothing that looks like osteoarthritis yet. So just keep on doing what you're doing and take uh, some, some uh, painkiller when needed, etc., and come back, you know, when, if and when it gets worse. And these patients, many of them at least, have actually osteoarthritis and would be better off if they were actually provided with that diagnosis and treated accordingly. And there are other aspects then of early osteoarthritis where we can get into perhaps details if you want to discuss that of why we think it's important to identify osteoarthritis earlier in the disease process than we routinely have been doing in the past. Well, why don't we just get into that now? And if I could get you to expand a little bit more on the benefits of identifying disease earlier in the disease course before they have established joint disease. Well, when we're, when we're talking again about established osteoarthritis, this often means that the patient is not diagnosed with osteoarthritis until that patient actually has had the problems, the pain, uh, the loss of function for an extended time. They often at that time have chronic pain and they have structural joint changes. And if you have chronic pain, it means that your, your pain system actually changes and becomes more sensitive even to normal loading so of your joint. So you actually have pain in normal activities uh, where, the, where the normal joint would not sense or, or signal pain, but it does when you have that and it gets worse with time. And also in established osteoarthritis, you have Biomechanical changes, you have changes in how you load your joint, your gait. You can get knock-kneed or bow-legged, depending on what type of knee osteoarthritis you have, for example. You have loss of range of function often, for example, in your hip. And all of these things actually makes it more difficult, both the change in pain perception and the biomechanical changes makes it more difficult to successfully treat the osteoarthritis. So if we could identify these patients earlier, what we believe is that we can be more successful in actually treating their symptoms and preventing those symptoms from getting worse. That's a great explanation and I think it really helps the listeners to understand why there may be benefits in identifying this earlier. Now, in the interest of expanding on that a little bit further, are there other diseases out there that might have a more proactive emphasis on early diagnosis management and prevention than osteoarthritis that could prove as exemplars for us in this area? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that uh, our way of dealing with osteoarthritis today in, in healthcare is very much reactive. We're, well, we're telling the patient that, you know, when it gets worse, come back, etc. And then we'll give you something more and then we'll help you with something else, etc. Rather than being 
proactive in trying to identify these patients, which we're now talking about, as early as possible, and then start treating them with something that we know is actually helpful. And this may actually prevent them from getting worse instead of waiting for them to get worse. And in, for example, diabetes care, in uh, cardiovascular care, in the care of the rheumatoid arthritis patient, which I'm sure you're familiar with, what we try to do is to identify the patients as early as possible in their disease, because we know from experience with, of those diseases that it's easier actually and more successful to be more to be successful in treating their condition if we get them earlier and this is also true for osteoporosis for cancer so why not in osteoarthritis this is what we believe okay so let's take the uh, exemplar diseases that you've spoken about and talk about osteoarthritis and turn that belief as you call it into a reality, where are we at with regards to consensus criteria for classifying early osteoarthritis and how can that best be progressed? We've been discussing this for quite some time and there have been some, some earlier efforts, but uh, I, I would say uh, we haven't really sort of tried hard enough and tr systematically enough. So what we're now trying is to use two different tracks of, of investigation where firstly we are using large patient cohorts, large groups of patients that have been very carefully studied over many years and where we follow those individuals over time and we can determine which of those individuals actually progressed in their disease and we can identify the factors that perhaps were associated to begin with for their later disease progression. Uh, we're looking, for example, and using the Osteoarthritis Initiative data bank from the United States, a unique and large data bank. And we're currently working on data using that data bank and trying to identify factors associated with early disease and future disease progression. The other track we are going down is in, in parallel is that we're using experts or gathering experts from around the world and coming up using a Delphi uh, procedure, essentially a consensus procedure, a structured consensus procedure to come up with what the experts believe should or are the factors that would identify patients with early osteoarthritis and with a higher risk of disease progression in the future. And then we'll merge these two tracks and come up with draft criteria, which can then be used and tested and further refined. Thank you for the clarification. Now, I don't anticipate a strict answer, but I'm just wondering if you could look into your crystal ball a little bit and help us to understand that if we were able to have these criteria available, how is it that they would be applied in a clinical practice setting? Well, we could take several views on this, and I think our view, my view, would vary depending on which hat I'm wearing, so to say. But my favorite 
hat at the present is to actually focus on those patients that already have some symptoms of osteoarthritis but they don't yet have any other signs of osteoarthritis in the form of joint changes in joint structure, for example. So those are the patients that would seek health care, but would be told, nah, there is no sign yet that you actually have osteoarthritis. So yeah, well, come back when, when it gets worse and we'll have another x-ray. And, and, you know, as I'm saying, we're being reactive to their, their problems rather than being proactive. The advantage with start using that as a starting point is that we're actually looking, we're actually identifying patients who have symptoms and that are, that are seeking healthcare. Another platform where you might consider starting is doing, let's say, some sort of a screening where you would take a blood test or you would do imaging of joints of people. And that risks identify patients who have perhaps some signs of osteoarthritis, but actually don't have symptoms yet. And I think that's a more challenging task and a more difficult group of patients to deal with, or individuals, I should say, because they don't have any symptoms yet, to deal with as we go down the track. The advantage with focusing to begin with on those that actually have symptoms is that they're actually seeking health care and they are seeking healthcare advice for their problems. So if we can identify those within that group that actually are at highest risk of progressing in their disease and getting a more serious form of the disease, perhaps eventually ending up with the orthopedic surgeon after a few years for a joint replacement, then those patient groups could be used to study treatments potential that potentially could stop or slow disease progression. The other aspect of that, if I may add, is that these are patients that are seeking health care for their symptoms. And irrespective of whether they are at risk of disease progression or if they just, and I'm using that within quotes, just have their joint symptoms, but no apparent risk for, for getting worse, at least by our criteria, then we can actually offer them treatment that we know is actually helpful for their joint symptoms of their osteoarthritis, even though it's mild, even though it's early stage. And there are such treatments. I would suggest what we recommend in the international guidelines, and I would say almost all national guidelines at this time, this would be a com combined treatment of, or a combined program of education about the disease, a structured exercise program, and weight control advice, and for those that need it, where is indicated, a, a course of weight loss uh, with specialists in that particular area as an add-on. We know this helps for these patients. It's effective and it's low-tech, low-cost compared to much other things, and it's low-risk. Thanks, Stefan. It sounds like there's a lot of important work going on in this area, and with regards those two parallel processes that you spoke about, when is it that you think we might actually have 
and operational classification criteria being used in clinical practice for the purpose of early uh, diagnosis or detection of those with osteoarthritis? I started out by saying that I'm in it for the long run. <laughs> and I think anyone, anyone working with osteoarthritis knows that uh, you, have to be it in, you have to be in it for the long run. And uh, sometimes you're, uh, you retire before your uh, patient cohorts that you study mature. <laughs> but anyway, saying that, it means that I think it'll be a few years. We're not there tomorrow. But perhaps in, in, in a year or a couple of years, we have some draft criteria. And then we can start using those in real life, so to say, and testing those in real life uh, groups of, of individuals. And perhaps using them to test in clinical trials some of the newer treatments that are being developed in, in the, the pharma industry but also for sure helping those that don't want to go down that track of these patients uh, with the treatment that we just mentioned, the core treatment, which we know is helpful. And I, I, I'm of the very definite view that if we intervene early with these early patients, even with this core treatment, which sounds very simple, I'm convinced that this is effective and can actually keep the patient away from the orthopedic surgeon for a long time. So just expanding a little bit further on some of the key interventions there for a person that might have early osteoarthritis, including what you spoke about before, which is education, exercise, weight reduction for those people who are above a healthy weight, along with a range of other interventions. And I guess trying to look a little bit further at some of the merits or otherwise of different prevention type activities and specifically comparing uh, the merits of weight loss in a at-risk population from a secondary prevention perspective. So identifying a population that are above a healthy weight who have early intermittent joint symptoms and comparing that with a primary prevention opportunity, which would be joint injury prevention. So we know that people who participate in high-risk sports, are potentially at risk of tearing ligaments and menisci on their knees and placing themselves at subsequent development of osteoarthritis. And we know that neuromuscular training interventions can reduce those injury rates quite dramatically. And so I'm not suggesting that secondary prevention and primary prevention opportunities here need to be mutually exclusive. Potentially they could both occur, but what would be the merits or benefits or otherwise of those two different tracks of interventions? Well, both of them, I think, are are important to consider. The uh, joint injuries that uh, young people sustain in, in sports and, and active lifestyles uh, are indeed a risk factor for getting uh, mainly knee osteoarthritis because it's mainly knee injuries later in life. And later in life means perhaps 10 or 20 years down the line. And you may think that's a lifetime, but it means that when you're young, you will have, you will be someone with osteo knee osteoarthritis in perhaps your late 30s or even mid 30s or early 40s. And uh, that's not a whole lot of fun if you're an act, if you have aspirations of being an active person and you perhaps have kids in a young age and uh, so on and so forth, what you can imagine. So yes, that's a given. And yes, uh, there are actually effective 
prevention programs for team sports and for other sports that have been proven to be effective, but uh, they need to be practiced in order to be effective, of course. On a population level, I would argue that perhaps if you could prevent or at least decrease the proportion of people with uh, overweight and obesity that would have a larger effect on, on the population level. How, uh, and then moving towards your, what you were saying about secondary prevention, saying that people with overweight and beginning knee problems, they should be advised to, to decrease uh, their body weight, lose weight. And often 10% or something of that, in that order, 5 to 10% can be quite helpful in decreasing the symptoms, the, the knee pain, the loss of function that they have, together with an exercise program. However, whether that will actually prevent them having to seek the, the help of a surgeon uh, later on in life is still not proven and we don't really know. It might be that these individuals are in the same situation as those that actually have sustained a joint injury. There is not a lot we can do to prevent the osteoarthritis from happening. It may be that with the, with, at least with the obese uh, persons, that it's actually when they seek care for their knee problems and they are obese and have been usually for a number of years, it's actually too late. The damage is already done, so to say. So these are things that we don't really know. But what we do know is that if you're overweight, if you're obese, and if you have a knee problem or a problem for that matter, you can decrease your symptoms, your problems uh, that you experience by losing weight. That we know. Yeah. And that's important enough, I think. So I completely agree with you that there are definitely merits in both. And as you suggested, given the proportion of people who are developing osteoarthritis as a consequence of being above a healthy weight, then those who develop it as a consequence of joint injury probably lends an argument towards uh, intervening through that secondary prevention strategy by targeting people who are above a healthy weight who have intermittent symptoms. But I think there's also potentially an important argument here around the fact that those people who have Osteoarthritis is a consequence of joint injury, develop that disease much earlier in their life course. And so I have to live with those disabling symptoms for a long, long period of time. So I think there's definitely an opportunity here for some comparative modeling to look at the effects of implementing either strategy in a healthcare system and the impact that that might have on uh, quality adjusted life years and disability adjusted life years. So moving on from that, and you touched upon this a little bit a moment ago, but some of the potential methods of making an early diagnosis include things like higher order imaging, like an MRI or biochemical market testing in blood or urine. And they potentially have substantial costs associated with them. I'm just wondering if you could expand on the potential downsides of using methodology like that, both in terms of uh, their cost, their potential for overdiagnosis, and potentially their ramifications for subsequent overtreatment. 
Yes, this is a concern that we've been having when trying to do, that is to expand the disease concept, so to say, of osteoarthritis. If we accept the fact that we would set the diagnosis of osteoarthritis on people that show no joint structural changes on an x-ray, if we were to, to use those criteria in the future, uh, you, we would have to accept that the number of people who have been diagnosed with osteoarthritis would increase as compared to using the old criteria. Yes. However, uh, again, as I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, at this time at least, we are in the current effort focusing on those that already have joint symptoms and are most often actually themselves seeking health care and seeking advice for their joint problems. So in essence, we are actually dealing with a symptomatic group of patients that need help. And we are suggesting that the treatments they should be advised to use first are the core treatments, which are low tech, low cost, low risk. And therefore the cost increase for handling or for dealing or for caring for this expanded group of patients is relatively uh, modest, I would say, in comparison to what it might be otherwise. And the diagnostic methodology that we are suggesting to use is not a fancy one, but rather in general using old-fashioned clinical criteria and the clinical understanding of the disease to set the diagnosis. So again, that's a low cost approach. Another approach, of course, would be to consider among risk groups, say overweight patients or obese patients, to screen using MRI or blood tests or will you for those who might have signs using those technologies of having osteoarthritis. Now that's a different game, I think. And this, then you end up considering what will you do with those patients? How will you treat them or will you treat them at all? And if you were to treat them, how many would you need to treat in order to prevent one case of osteoarthritis or a severe osteoarthritis, etc.? So then you run into the issues, of course, clearly of overdiagnosis, overtreatment, and costs issues and lots of other things associated with that particular aspect and and there are there are clearly are ethical aspects and whenever as we are discussing here uh, we are considering to expand a disease concept the ethical aspects of what sort of collateral damage might be might be caused by by telling a patient that they actually have osteoarthritis of their knee that needs to be paired with careful uh, information about what the disease actually is and what the prognosis is etc so that's a great explanation and i I think it's uh, really important to understand the concepts of overdiagnosis and overtreatment as they may become very relevant in the not too distant future. Now, in the interest of uh, moving on to the next segment of our podcast, are there any patient-friendly resources or links that 
might be helpful for the listeners out there that could shed further light on this topic. And while I'm there, anything that I should have asked that I didn't ask you about? Well, I'm afraid not. This is ongoing work. And, and uh, no, I'm, I'm not aware of any information on the website, but I am aware of a website called My Joint Pain or something in Australia. Wouldn't that be good to add a half page or a couple of paragraphs on uh, what we've just talked about there? That's a great suggestion. And I love the diplomatic way that you inserted that in there. Now, in the interests of um, moving on and getting to know you a little bit better and particularly identifying what makes you tick, what's the biggest challenge you have with your specific role right now and how are you going to overcome that? Well, that's a difficult question. There are so many challenges at this time. I would say that it's the wish that there was more time and more resources for what you love doing. Completely agree. And I think if time was infinite, it would be amazing to think what we could do with that opportunity. Now, if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you prioritize above all else? Well, I could do anything. Well, I would, I would actually continue what I'm doing because I think that's where I'm doing something useful. But I would also very much like to be able to sit down with those in the decision-making positions we're talking about politicians, uh, senior healthcare, insurance companies, and whatnot about osteoarthritis, what this disease actually is, and talk about the burden it puts on, on society and the individual. Because if you look at what we're doing, the resources, what you and I are doing, the resources that are provided for research in osteoarthritis and for that matter care in osteoarthritis, they are a fraction per patient being affected compared to many other diagnoses. I could make the comparison with rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, osteoarthritis uh, is 10 times more common, at least perhaps 20 times more common than rheumatoid arthritis. It actually affects the patient quite severely, even in comparison with rheumatoid arthritis. But the number of dollars going into rheumatoid arthritis research per patient is probably 10 times greater at least, or more, than osteoarthritis patients. So again, I think we need to convince those with the power to decide that this is a disease that needs more attention. Completely agree with you that we need to work much harder at the policy end and influence our politicians and health department folk and the way and what of what we should be doing for patients with osteoarthritis. Now. I've obviously had the privilege and pleasure of spending quite a bit of time with you over my career and hoping to continue to be able to have that opportunity, but you've made enormous contributions uh, to osteoarthritis in general, made an enormous influence on me um, and your insights and generosity and remarkable contributions to a whole host of different people in the field have been both instrumental but also groundbreaking and you continue to spread that generosity widely and the insights you've provided are continuing to make a difference 
So I'm really interested in that regard. How do you continue to motivate yourself and what I guess, sparks you to continue to make the remarkable contribution and difference that you do make? Well, I'll actually be honest and, and say that I'm probably egotistical and I'm say, I'll say that I enjoy working with friends around the world in putting down the next piece in the puzzle. <laughs> and if that, if that sort of, you know, helps patients, and of course, you know, there is a bit of that as well. I am a, I am a, a doctor. I was trained, uh, trained as a surgeon. I like to, you know, help people with uh, joint problems uh, to, uh, to a better life. But I, I, I'll be honest and say I'm doing it because I enjoy it. So, yeah, well, I would wholeheartedly agree with you that I think for many of us, Definitely a, uh, enjoyment and curiosity helps to spark a lot of the motivation that we would otherwise uh, use to keep our career going. But I guess I've never looked at you if the word that you used was egotist as, as someone where that particular uh, descriptor would fit very well. I think you're less than self-involved. And, and so anyway. Yeah. And what actually, what I enjoy most is actually looking at the young people that I had the privilege to uh, to train and to mentor in their earlier careers and, and uh, looking at them actually launching uh, their own careers in osteoarthritis uh, research or research in general, but mostly osteoarthritis research and, and being very successful. I enjoy that very much and it brings, you know, great joy. From my own personal experience and having had the privilege of interacting with you that you've had an enormous influence both on myself, but I think a lot of other people around me. Um, and I truly appreciate all of the contributions that you've made there. Now, how is it that you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things? It's getting challenging because uh, in my days, in my very early days doing, doing my first research, and, and mind you, that was some 50 years ago, <laughs> uh, it was easy comparably. We didn't have the computers, we didn't have, you know, the, the web, uh, et cetera, et cetera. That's, and there was there was less to read, but perhaps a bit more effort in in finding the things you needed to read. But today it's easy to find things to read, but the the challenge is to uh, filter and identify the important bits and pieces because it's just too much to keep track of. But uh, I, I talk to my friends and uh, get tips, you know. Uh, and I'm, I, as I said, I'm still curious. Completely agree, and it's a really very fine balance there between sufficient time and having balance and some form of equanimity with the remainder of your life. Now, in leaving our listeners, is there any piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to impart uh, in closing? It's quite simple. Uh, I would say uh, stay active and... Um, talk to your, your physio on how to stay active. And that's brilliant, sagely advice, and it's a great way for us to finish. And I just want to close by expressing my sincere appreciation for all of the value contributions you've made to me over many years, but in particular today for the time that you've, again, generously spared and shared uh, with both myself and the listeners. It's 
a wonderful contribution you continue to make. And I'm, again, sincerely appreciative. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks for the chat, David. Stay yeah. well, stay safe. That is all for this episode of Joint Action. If you like what you hear and want to support us, please rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Alternatively, visit the website www.jointaction.info to post a question, donate to our research, or send us some feedback. Between now and next time, please do take care of yourself, stay strong, and stay active. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.